Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. Do you think the ABC's left wing? Don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. And it is a very fine day for the... uh, AFL final, which is uh, Saturday. That's when we broadcast live. If you're picking us up on the podcast, then uh, the event will have happened and the result will be in. Everyone is hoping that, of course, Richmond will win, but even if they're not football supporters, (laughs) which is probably where I sit. (laughs) Anyway, by the by, it's a nice day and Solidarity Breakfast is going to be looking at uh, we're going to revisit the Australia Day debacle, the, well, actually the step forward, which a couple of local councils in Melbourne have uh, pushed the removal of celebrations of Australian Day on the 26th of January, calling it a, uh, an inappropriate uh, day uh, to be, it's not a celebratory day for a whole section of the Australian community. In fact, it's called Invasion Day by in, uh, the First Peoples. And uh, we're going to revisit that because uh, uh, fascist groups have been harassing these local councils. Moreland Council meeting last uh, earlier this week was again targeted by fascist groups uh, doing demonstrations and disrupting the meeting. So we're going to have a a look at that again, and we're going to talk to uh, Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism Fascism uh, about this whole issue. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to hear from Amanda Stone, who's the uh, mayor of uh, Yarra Council, who lays out quite simply the reasoning behind the steps by her council to uh, take this step. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking to Jerome, Jerome Small, who's uh, going to be speaking at the uh, union conference, the uh, activi- activist union activist and history conference, which is going to be on October the 14th at the Victorian Trades Hall. A big day of uh, looking at history as well as uh, current uh, issues for unionists and workers. And uh, later on, uh, Humphrey's going to come in and talk to us about uh, a very interesting person in Australian history, Oily Sam Griffith, who uh, did an analysis. He was the uh, he was uh, Queensland Premier before, and he was the one who actually drafted the uh, the Constitution. Very interesting uh, uh, analysis that around. Um, Griffiths uh, um, toying, or well, 
quite clear understanding of uh, how uh, the uh, the working class are diddled of profits out of their labour and uh, how he was able to then easily sit in the ranks of his class, which was the property class, money class, the political class, to ensure that the status quo remained. Anyway, it's a very interesting piece of history. Uh, but uh, before, before we do, let's uh, hear an important message from 3CR's community. Tilda is Melbourne's trans and gender diverse film festival, created to showcase and support the work of trans and gender diverse filmmakers, along with works that have trans and gender diverse content. Join Tilda at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, October 26 to 29, for our 2017 festival, filled with cinema, community, and celebration. Head to tildamelbourne.com for program details and tickets. That's T I L D E. Melbourne.com, a 3CR supporter. Three CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead up to the National Postal Survey on same sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic, and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're going to go straight on to a chat that uh, Lucy Waldron-Brown from the Monday Breakfast on 3CR had with Amanda Stone. Amanda Stone is the uh, mayor of Yarra Council, and Yarra Council was the first council, well, actually it was the second, uh, the uh, Western Australian uh, Council in, uh, what was it, uh, uh, there was a one in uh, Perth, uh, Fremantle Council kicked it off, actually. They were the first who decided that uh, Australia Day was an inappropriate celebratory uh, event, that uh, there were it was a far more complex issue, and uh, Yarra Council took up the baton. So we'll hear from Amanda Stone. She will lay out quite clearly the uh, reasons for why the 26th of January is problematic. We're now joined by City of Yarra Mayor Amanda Stone. Councillor Stone, thank you for coming on Monday Breakfast. It's a pleasure, Lucy. We wanted to talk with you about the City of Yarra's decision regarding council events on the 26th of January. It's a contentious day for many. Can you tell us, uh, for a bit of background, about the changes the council voted in favour of at last month's meeting? Well, we... Uh, made a number of decisions that followed on from prolonged and in-depth conversations with our Aboriginal community and these were all proposals that they had suggested and we adopted. One of those was to uh, acknowledge the date as one that wasn't 
one of celebration, so that we would refer to it by its date only as January the 26th. Another was to move the celebratory events that we scheduled on that day to another date. We don't do much on the 26th of January anyway. We hold a citizenship ceremony and uh, give out our Citizen of the Year awards. So we were would have been moving those. Um, we don't do anything else on that day generally. Uh, and most of all, um, in partnership with the Aboriginal community, we undertook to uh, conduct a, a campaign of information and education about why that date is not experienced as a positive one for the Aboriginal community. And that's the predominant action that came out of our council resolution. Can you share um, with us some of the thoughts that came out of the community as part of the consultation that prompted you to take action? Uh, there were a lot of thoughts, but there are also discussions that we've been having for a long time with both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal um, members of the community. They were really that um, a national day needs to be one that includes everybody, where everyone can feel proud and happy and celebratory about our nation. January the 26th is a date that's been adopted as Australia Day based on an historical event, the um, claiming of the land, Australia is terra nullius, by another nation. And that simple act has actually led to a whole series of two centuries long uh, negative impacts on the Aboriginal community still being felt today um, and it's been quite devastating. So it's not a day that uh, the Aboriginal community in Yarra in particular, and that's who we talk to, uh, experiences a positive event. So to, to continue to acknowledge that as a national day of celebration is um, inconsistent with what we've been told and what any empathic, compassionate person listening to these stories would understand. And what, what has been the federal government's response to these changes? Um, they've, they've, they seem to find um, a fairly simple action on behalf of our council as fairly threatening to the national identity of the nation and have stated that... Um, by not holding a citizenship ceremony on that date, we are politicising uh, Australia Day. Um, and, of course, they've stripped us of our ability to conduct citizenship ceremonies, not just on that date, but on the other five days in the year where we hold them. And uh, I understand that there will be no backing down from that. So um, that's been the reactive response, but it's also been linked with a claim that um, it's un-Australian, I've heard that, and also that um, this is making something political. Uh, you could say that the reaction to the date so far suggests that it's already politicised. I know the council's vote was unanimous, but there was also some opposition from local residents. What would you say to help unite the community over the council's decision? I think the opposition comes from many um, points. One of them is really a lack of understanding of what our Aboriginal community has told us, which is it's a day of sadness and loss and that it really is difficult to say this should be our day of national celebration when you ignore that experience of a whole group of people. 
So I think I think there's a bit of education and understanding. Most people have um, empathy or the capacity for empathy, and most people have the ability to understand another person's point of view or a group of persons' point of view if they have the information. And that's what our Aboriginal community wanted us to do, which is really inform and educate people. That's a slow process. It has to happen through conversations, respectful conversations, and conversations that are about exchanges and giving and taking, understanding each other's point of view. But there is a history there that happened. Um, You can't undo the history. We just do have to understand it. There are also a lot of people in the community who support the council's changes. How can they get behind the decision? We're backing up this decision with um, a strategy that is part of which is a social media campaign. We'll be having um, a lot of stories and uh, comments on our social media channels from people who have that experience of what the 26th of January means. So it would be great to have people who support our position, joining that discussion, contributing to the social media campaign, posting comments on Facebook and Twitter, uh, joining the Change the Date campaign, um, using the hashtag Change the Date um, to get that shared around, and simply talking to people. Uh, It's really difficult to talk to someone who's angry about something or who doesn't agree. But if we don't actually start to have those conversations, we're not going to get to that point of understanding. The last one is called Lucky Country. And uh, while I wrote it, I wrote it because of reconciliation. And I hear a lot of non-Indigenous people say how lucky they are to be brought up in this country. Peace to you too, brother. And so this one is called Lucky Country. It's the last one, okay? Go on. Where do they come from? Are they Australians? Or are they Poms? What did they bring here? What do they speak? Do they speak English? Or do they speak Greek? They bring trouble. They bring guns. Shoot your dead. You're nothing but a bum. They say you're no hooper. You're no good. You're just nothing. You're just a boom. Where can we go? Where can we stay? Stand up and fight. Kneel down and pray. We have to do something. We 
have to together. We can't do it alone. We can make it better. So come on, you people. Let's come as one. Bring all your family, children, dad and mom. Bring all your friends. Bring all your relations. This is what we call reconciliation. Thank you very much, and you all have a great afternoon. Okay. Yeah. G'day, Debbie. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, Sandy. Yeah, that was a rather interesting song called Lucky Country by uh, Andy Elberts and the Walkabouts, which I thought was a perfect uh, segue to talking to you about uh, the uh, incredible attacks on the Moreland Council by neo-Nazis once again, the second yeah. time. Yes, yes. You were there? Um, yes, I was. Um, I was there with other members of the community who were speaking to submissions that we were making to the council about um, some bylaws and that we felt were anti-democratic. But anyway, we were there, and um, it was at the beginning of the meeting uh, as it opened that suddenly these these uh, neo-Nazis stormed in. Yeah. Uh, they had done this earlier at um, Yarra Council, and of course their whole point of storming in is that, uh, as listeners are probably aware, that um, uh, Yarra Council, Darabin Council, and Moreland Council um, had decided to drop the celebration of January 26th in solidarity with the First Nations. Now, the uh, person who's at the head of this, Neil Erickson's got a pretty interesting and checkered past, hasn't he? Yes, he does. Uh, he has been with... Uh, he, he kind of is part of various neo-Nazi configurations. He was with the uh, United Patriots Front. Apparently, he's associated somehow with the Party for Freedom now. Um he was one of the three neo-Nazis who were charged and convicted in the Melbourne Magistrates Court for um, a very violently Islamophobic stunt that they had pulled in Bendigo in 2015. Um, and that very night of their conviction, that was the night that he led a group of neo-Nazis to storm Yara Council. And, in fact, one of the placards that um, they were carrying into the Moreland Council meeting said, Kami Council beheads Australia Day. So they seem to have this fixation on a, um, a very racist stereotype of, um, 
of Muslims. It's very real, isn't it, this white supremacist nationalism uh, that's rising, raising its head, isn't it? it it's, it's been, you, a campaign against racism and fascism has been uh, trying to alert the general public that this is not something that people should turn their heads, their eyes away from. Yes, um, it's, it's showing how broad the fascist agenda actually is. So while they started out with Islamophobia, the way Nazis did, um, you know, 80 years ago, starting out with anti-Semitism to drive that wedge within our communities to divide the working class, um, they are now quickly spreading. So here this was um, directly attacking First Nations. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, they were present at a uh, a rally, the, a far-right rally that was targeting the African community, the rally calling for greater uh, police powers to racially profile. Uh, so, yes, the, 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 the racism doesn't stop. It, it, it actually covers the entire spectrum of people of color, whether they be First Nations or immigrants of color. The thing is, though, that their agenda goes even beyond that. So they're using this Australian values mantra to cover um, everything and demonize so many groups. They're also going after the um, LGBTIQ community. So, for example, in Sydney last week, they held a so-called Straight Lives Matter rally. Uh, In Melbourne in June, there was the Australian Pride March, as they called it, which was as directly against the LGBTI community as people of color. And, of course, we've been watching their active role in the entire um, marriage equality um, uh, debate. So we really do need to recognize that very broad agenda of fascism. And, of course, when we look at this, we have to include, you know, women as being their targets, and it is not going to be far down the track that they will be directly going after unions. The uh, it, it, this uh, business about uh, like the yes vote, for example, it, as someone sent to me the other day, it's actually a a, a very well orchestrated uh, divisive uh, tool within the Australian community. Even though it's been made quite clear by genuine polls as opposed to this lacklustre sort of cheapo sort of version of a poll that 70% of Australians are quite comfortable with the notion that there should be equal citizen rights uh, because I see this as a citizen's right uh, that uh, uh, rather than marriage equality, if you know what I mean. Like, it, why are we actually mm. voting on mm. other people's mm. rights like this? I mean, we're the special ones. We're supposed to be voting for other people's rights. Yeah, I mean, it's a civil right. Yeah. And whatever we think of marriage as an institution, institution yeah. it's actually irrelevant um, that it's it's a civil right. And that's what the equality means. And even if we win on this, we still have uh, very important issues in the struggle of LGBTIQ people, yes. you know, for equality. So this is only just one one but aspect. It, but it's of, an exa- yeah. but it's an example of a, a using 
this kind of tactic as these uh, neo-Nazis are doing in order to push buttons of fear, creating, Mm. dividing people up into uh, sections and uh, being quite unspecific about what Australian values are. Because as you say, uh, it's not okay to celebrate the ongoing genocide against First Nations people. Is that an Australian value that we celebrate genocide against First Nations people? Are they prepared to talk to that issue? And exactly. And and the thing is that the decision of these three councils, which will hopefully become decisions of many more councils across the country, that decision is um, striking at the heart of um, white nationalism. And of course, white nationalism has been um, the basis of history in here in Australia. Of course, we only have to remember the white Australia policy, which, alas, is still alive and well, even if not officially. So that decision, um, which is about recognizing the fact that January 26 has been a celebration of genocide, and we won't do that anymore, it was a very important decision that pushed the buttons of of nationalism and nationalists. Yeah, it's about waking up to yourself, really, isn't it? Yes, it is, and it's putting it right out there on you know for for all of us to to recognize and deal with. And um, you are right that uh, the, the the fascists are they're they're jumping on every single button that is being pushed. So it's no surprise that they would be jumping on this as they would with marriage equality, um, as they certainly will with, you know, women's equality and so on. So we know this because we know from 80 years ago, we do have to learn the lessons of history. And I think also that speaking of lessons, it was really quite chilling to be there in that council meeting of Moreland to have them storming in because it, it, is, it is reminiscent of that tactic that fascists have used historically. They do go in, or they did go in, to disrupt, disrupt meetings, and they did it violently. They, they, they did it by injuring people and um, sometimes killing people. They would go into meetings of the left, of unions, public meetings like last Wednesday, and to see that tactic played out uh, was quite chilling. And we do have to recognize what that is signaling and the fact that we have to be prepared for this and community defense is something that we've got to be taking seriously. So what happened on that night? Uh, What was the reaction of the councillors and their security? Well, um, again, first first of all, it was a bit stunning, but of course we all um, gathered our senses immediately. And um, there were these neo-Nazis, they were, they were, dressed in sort of, you know, Australian regalia and whatever, and um, with their placards, such as the one I mentioned, uh, 
and Neil Erickson was there with his megaphone, and they were just they were just trumpeting these insults um, at counselors. You are a disgrace, et cetera. And then they were pointing the megaphones at us. Now, um, we in the we community members who were there um, immediately stood up and started chanting back. And we were chanting back such things as Nazis out and always was, always will be Aboriginal land. So we, we, that, that was what was going on in the, in the council room. It must have lasted, uh, I don't know, um, no more than about 10 minutes, if, if that long. Longest so they 10 just minutes. charged in and they charged out. What's that? Longest 10 minutes. Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it was it was pretty intense, yeah. and um, as soon as they left, uh, the meeting then just proceeded. Uh, thanks for reporting for us, and we should all be alert. Definitely be alert, and what I would suggest is that uh, anyone who is not yet connected up with Campaign Against Racism and Fascism to... Um, to get onto the Facebook, like the Facebook, and um, can also get alerts from us if they would like. And if they want to, they should just text the word subscribe to the following number, which is 0422-726-843, and get involved with CARF because it's a united front that has successfully kept the fascist weak and demoralized, but it needs to build if we're actually going to stop them. Give the number again, Debbie. 0422-726-843. Thanks, mate. Talk Thanks, to you Annie. soon. Okay. Activism and History Conference, featuring a first-hand account of BLF Green Bands, farm worker organising with the National Union of Workers, Rebel Women, A Secret History of Trades Hall, Campaigning for a Union Yes, and much more. The Union Activism and History Conference, hosted by Socialist Alternative and Red Flag Newspaper. Saturday, October the 14th at Trades Hall, Carlton. For more information and bookings, head to redflag.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Jerem Small in the studio and you're going to speak at that very conference. I am, yes. Um, thanks for having me on, Annie. Yeah, um, that's great. And uh, you're actually you've gone. T- th- this conference has actually Im- has become embedded. It's been going for quite a while now. We've, I think this is the fifth year that we've done it, and yeah. um, we see it as a reasonably um, useful and hopefully um, 
productive forum for, uh, well, socialists, but all sorts, really. Um, some people new to the union movement who just want to find out the absolute basics of it. Some people who are, you know, veterans who have been around the track many times. Um, well, it's got something for everybody. I've been to several of them and I do record quite a few of the conversations because it doesn't just uh, talk about... Uh, 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 current issues. It also goes to the uh, issues of the past, uh, so it gives historical context, but also uh, uh, up to the minute struggles that have happened over the last year, and it also gives pointers to how you can actually uh, take action yourself. If we can cram all of that into a single day, I know. <laughs> we're doing well, pretty do. well. You do pretty well. So, yeah, part of the problem could be choosing which session to go to. That's we've got, right. We've got three or four sessions on at any one time. That's right. Uh, as well as one or two plenaries. Um, so, yeah. And as you say, they range from, uh, like we've got a session on uh, campaigning for a union. Yes, you know, everyone would have seen the stuff on Facebook. It's been fantastic what a lot of unions have done. But there's a lot of really terrific stories of what's happened when that campaign has been pushed out at an actual workplace level. So we'll be hearing a bunch of that and a bunch of, um, you know, history, some of the hidden history of um, uh, union struggles and support for LGBTI rights in this country, which usually gets overlooked. So everything from that, which is, you know, we're about halfway through this um, uh, postal... How long, did, well, how long well, does it go for? Because this it seems to be forever. Yeah, but that's right. And this is a, this actually is a tactic. I was thinking about it the other day. This is a tactic. People have this enthusiasm to begin with, but it just goes on and on and on. And this is the, it's time. Is is a uh, people have to be patient, basically. Well, I just look. I, I don't. I, uh, I suspect that the right wing were sort of hoping that the time would be a factor for them, that that would give them more time to drum up their, you know, fear campaign, basically, to, so to, to get out the no vote amongst uh, undecided voters. And I noticed um, that the Australian headline yes, last week saying the yes, yes vote is losing steam. Hard to tell. The oh, it's a propaganda run, so you okay. can't actually you can't actually believe anything yeah. the Australians say. But but the positive side of that, I mean, to the silver, the very large silver lining, I think, is that it's given the yes campaign. You know, not only have we had the biggest rallies in support of LGBTI rights in Australian history, first in Melbourne, I think we held the record for a week, and then Sydney had fifty thousand. There's another rally coming up this Sunday, one o'clock at the State Library, um, and I believe that there's things in the works for um, another national day of action. Um, the last or second last Sunday in October just to finish the campaign off. So, like, you know, I really hope we get a big yes uh, vote. Obviously, it's a pretty bloody basic civil right. Well, um, it's a civil rights mm, issue. Yeah, but also, well, absolutely. Like, you know... you know, like, yeah. I think it's outraged. I'm, it, it, I'm steaming mad that I'm being asked to write it, to vote on other citizens' rights. Yeah, I mean, that's the terrain that we've been given, so that's what we have to fight on. Yeah, um, and the positive part about it is that the campaign has been dominated by mass mobilisations and, you know, the unions, really. Um, you know, for all that corporate Australia sort of says that they're endorsing it, it's not really like they've done much as well, far who, as I who, can who, see. Who so, cares, anyway? But yeah, yeah, no, well, exactly. So, you know, if we I mean, a corporate, to... entity, a corporate entity is, is barely uh, human, in a sense. I mean, I know a lot of humans work for corporate entities, but they are kept in line 
regarding what they're allowed to personally express. That's the whole purpose of a corporation. Yeah, and all sorts of, you know, we're told we live in a democracy, but, you know, try exercising your democratic rights by... Within a corporation. That's right, by, you know, as, as you know, we've had, uh, you know, friends and comrades of mine who have been disciplined or threatened with discipline yeah. for wearing a yes badge, for instance. And this well, is there by, you go. by companies that well, supposedly support the campaign. So when to, was, see, to see I, the unions driving it is I was is talking fantastic. to an NTU member from RMIT who says that in their contract they have to smile. <laughs> I, I remember that from a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I guess there's no limits to what they want to push it to. But but again, the positive side of it, like, you know, that is the struggle that we've been given. You know, there's no shying away from it. Um, and the positive side of it is that so many um, uh, union activists of all sorts have taken up the challenge. and They see uh, similarities. Well, yeah, and made it a union issue, made it a straightforward class issue. Um, you know, every union has LGBTI members. It's about, you know, it's great well, to it's see unions. it's part of society. Yeah, yeah. So they it's, are it's, members of society. People are members of society. And it's great to see unions specifically acknowledging that and pushing forward even this, you know, quite minimal right. Um, and my hope is that, um, you know, the fact that there's been some serious union campaigning for it um, and that there's been these, you know, consistent mass mobilisations for it, that that's driven the whole campaign. Hopefully that will leave a political residue, um, you know, on other issues that people remember. I remember the the first rally for same-sex marriage rights that I went to. How long ago was that? I don't know, 2000 and... Was it 2004, 2004? Yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, whatever. It was one of the very first rallies, and there was about three dozen of us standing in this thin drizzle at the State Library, <laughs> looking around, saying, oh, this is not going very well. And to see it, I mean, there's been international but developments. That's, that's the power of it, isn't it? Uh, Just standing up at all. Yeah. And I to, mean, making it an issue. Yeah. That there's a whole group of people within society who are not being given their citizens' rights. Uh-huh. Yeah, and so... As always, you know, it's up to ordinary people to take a stand about that. And that's been one positive part of the campaign is that it's had such a reliance on building those mobilisations up from the dozens to the dozens of thousands now. Well, well, the Union Activism and History Conference actually is is part of actually, it's another method of showing people how it's been done. Uh, you're going to be talking about divided, uh, oh, sorry, resisting the employer offensive, which is what's going on at the moment. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure... Uh, listeners of yours, Annie, would be very aware of the um, extremely serious and actually growing yeah, uh, range of attacks on um, on our unions. Uh, like, and you can put that a whole bunch of ways. People would be familiar with the big disputes that are going on now. We'll have, you know, like ESO, they've just passed 100 days on the, um, the protest yeah. line Down at, at, Longford. At, at Longford there. Um, people would be familiar with the CUB dispute last year, six months on the picket line to um, to get an industrial result. <laughs> but the, the scale and the speed of these... The North Miners, the... Uh, the uh, ones up in Western Australia. Griffin Cole, Cole who yeah. copped their agreement being cancelled last year and have uh, actually the maintenance workers out there have just launched an indefinite strike, or just launched, have been out since August 14th. Um, so, You know, the- uh, Jerem, mm. before you go on, I was saying to different people I was interviewing, oh, so they've taken the B out of the EBA. No bargaining, and and uh, no, it's only enterprise agreement, and uh, and we went, oh, oh. and then what do I see? Uh, streets ice cream, the, the Unilever, they they now just go EB, EA. There is no B in the EBA. Yeah, I think. I- yeah, I, I remember when that change came in a few years ago. I yeah. didn't really think anything much of it, but it's true. Like what. 
Enterprise bargaining has always been pretty problematic because it well, splits, splits the working class up. So the stronger sections, you know, for many years have, you know, generally sort of, you know, many of them have been able to maintain their wages and conditions while the weaker sections yeah. have just been let to go to the wall. Well, it's now, one now, step at a time. Well, that's right. And now... It's like the fascists, now one that, step at a time. That, um, the the uh, the the low wages and conditions of you know non unionised or poorly unionised sectors is being used through a couple of legal precedents to basically drag down the conditions of um, you know what have up till now been quite strong and quite um, you know quite strong sections of the working class with quite de- decent enterprise bargaining or enterprise agreements. Well, we should ma- maintain the EBA. Uh, this is, of course, takes us straight back to what happened in the Accord period because that's where the EBA started. Yeah, which people tend to forget. Like a lot of the restrictions that unions um, are under now on the taking of industrial action, on uh, having to give three days' notice for um, to, for a union <laughs> organizer to simply walk That's onto a site. Don't you think? Yeah, whereas like I remember when I started in the workforce, you'd you know call up the union or pop in or whatever, and within a week they'd just be in the boss's office going through their records and you know um, and enforcing the award. Um, things got a lot more complicated, and the start of that, well, the start, a, a big stage in that was the uh, the enterprise bargaining rules introduced in 1993, and now. Um, yeah, as I say, like, you know, people in old sites, uh, historically industrially strong sites like power stations, oil and gas oh, platforms, yeah. all the rest of it, uh, confronting the reality that it is very difficult or even impossible to be an island of industrial strength when you're surrounded by a sea of unorganised workers. So it's a huge challenge for the union movement. And in a lot of ways, I think... Um, from the Accord onwards, there's been a lot of forgetting how to organise. Um, and I think the challenge in front of us, well, one of them at least, is to um, start organising on a very systematic and, and large scale um, and revive the strike as well. Um, a lot of unions have been able to get by without organising much and without taking a lot of strike action because their enterprise agreements have carried on year after year. Now, thanks to the Horizon precedent and the John Holland precedent, you know, which opens the way for cases like CUB, like Murdoch and, and so on. And just to explain, people have forgotten what those precedents were. They were where the Fair Work Commission made uh, decisions that allowed the employers to say that it was... They, they actually said that the, it was not in the public interest to interfere with the boss's profit. You, to, to put it in a yeah, nutshell. Yeah, it's, it's actually, that's <laughs> not much of a paraphrase, Annie. Like, you, you read the Murdoch decision, um, like I've read the first, you know, dozen, couple of dozen pages of it, and it basically says uh, if the Fair Work Commission cancels the existing enterprise agreement, it will dramatically strengthen the, um, the hand of management at the negotiating table. Therefore, therefore, we will cancel the enterprise agreement. That is Fair Work's reasoning. Yeah. Um, so, and the same with the penalty rates. Uh-huh. It's just incredible well, the way well, they reason. They've like I've read a chunk of that decision as well. Not the whole thing. It's a pretty long decision, but they've actually scrapped the idea of a penalty rate. I know. According to Fair Work precedent, now there is no there is a relative disadvantage to working on a weekend, but there's no penalty on the employer for conducting your business at antisocial hours. So that is a precedent, um, you know, as many in the union And it was quite interesting because one, one of the we'll points in that particular decision uh, were, that they were looking at was uh, the reason for why penalty rates, one of the reasons for why penalty rates were actually introduced was 
which you know goes back into the distant time, is that employers were discouraged from making workers work for endless hours. I remember that was an issue for, uh, well, you know, for shop assistants actually. Just um, endless hours. Yeah, were- and in fact, I was reading this stuff from a from the eighteen. 18- 30s or something, where when uh, it was the Industrial Revolution began effectively around there, where there was this French guy, this employer, who thought that it was reasonable to make their workers work for 22 hours. Yeah, like, it's right. just incredible. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you know, for all that we won the eight-hour day and then we've had to, the thing is, everyone knows that we won the eight-hour day here in Melbourne in the construction trades in 1856. The thing is that we've had to keep on re-winning it (laughs) pretty much every generation. Um, And and, also, it's interesting, that whole thing too, that people forget, because little things get edged off the history, three day, uh, eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours uh, recreation, that was what it was about. But it was also, a print, the principle was that if you worked fewer hours, then other people would be employed. So you could actually spread the work around. That's yeah. right. That was a key issue. And now we seem to, like for all of these labour-saving devices and automation and all the rest of it, we seem to be working more, longer and scrappier sort of hours. Um, yeah. And the, the, the point is, well, one of the points I reckon is that all of these conditions were won by industrial action. They weren't won by the eight-hour day itself. Being nice. Well, the eight-hour day itself. There's a, there's well, the a, employee didn't give it to you. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a shock. But, uh, like, it's it's a nice example The the... Um, the strike that won the eight-hour day was started at um, Melbourne University. Now, the building that they were building in 18, April of 1856 when they walked off the job, job was for many years the law faculty of Melbourne Uni. It wasn't the learned judges that passed through that law faculty to get their qualifications. It wasn't the industrial barristers and all, you know, the equivalent of the Fair Work Commissioners who graduated from that law school who gave us the eight-hour day. It was, it was the actual uh, masons and other... Um, uh, workers who built the bloody thing, it was there taking industrial action. Um, but and was, that's obviously one thing we, we want to get back to. No, but it's interesting too because it's not just the workers in a sense uh, who are just individual workers. It was actually politicised workers. A lot of them with uh, a history of um, ch- chartism, which was you know one of the, the world's first great working class movements. A lot of those militants. Um, including James Stephen, um, you know, who proposed the motion to go on the strike um, that won the eight-hour day. Um, Yeah, there's always been a connection between politicised militants in the working class. Um, There's, you know, maybe you could say that there's three union revivals in this country. All three of them have been led by... They've been intimately tied up with a political radicalisation as well. It's pretty hard to imagine um, a widespread... um, you know, class-wide union revival happening outside of that. I reckon if you look at the 60s and what led to the Clary strike that busted the anti-union laws um, of the late 1960s, it was happening in all of that ferment around the Vietnam War. So there was this very politicised atmosphere, students going to jail for the, the right to hand out a leaflet in Burke Street Mall, or in Burke Street as it was then. Um, so there's this general atmosphere of defiance which you know permeated the whole working class and fed into that explosion. The same in the 30s, the same in the 1900s where you had you know, the syndicalists or the communists playing um, and, and that sort of milieu, I suppose, that sort of you know, tendency playing a very important role. So that's you know, one of the themes, I suppose, that'll be 
um, explored in a few of the sessions uh, at our union conference on October the 14th. Not the only one, but it'll pop up in a few sessions, I dare say. Mm. Uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're talking to Jerome Small. We're talking about um, the various issues, but uh, focusing on the Union Activist and History Conference, which is going to be on Saturday the 14th of October. starts at 9am, Victorian Trades Hall, which is on the corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, just up... Uh, past the city, really. Uh, so are you a Richmond supporter? You are today. <laughs> I think I have to be. The, the, the <laughs> Richmond army is already assembling out on the streets, just uh, just getting on my way here. So, yeah, I think we have to be. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, it's AFL final and uh, Melbourne has gone bizarre and everybody else, everybody who isn't an AFL supporter is sort of s- siphoned themselves off, hoping that nothing will affect them. <laughs> But uh, the uh, the issues of uh, the working class, and uh, the reason why I bring up the uh, the AFL final is that it's bread and circuses, really, in a sense, uh, in in a very uh, difficult time industrially for Australia. Yeah, though, I mean, it was uh, if you look at the connection between sport and politics, we've had a couple of pretty decent demonstrations just in the last pretty short period of time. Anyone looking at the United States over the last week. Um, the extraordinary scenes, um, like people, uh, Dave Zirin, who is a you know has written on sports and politics his whole life, has written a biography of Muhammad Ali. He says there is no precedent for just the extraordinary outpouring of solidarity um, against Donald Trump and his remarks uh, from NFL players, the American Football League players last weekend, who had the temerity to kneel rather than stand for the national anthem. That's right. Yeah. Um, as Over. A, a, as Black a, lives matter. As, yeah, talking about the um, the victimisation and the murder of um, of uh, black people, people of colour. Yeah, of people of colour by uh, police forces all over the United States. So, well, you um, could almost just say people. Yeah, though though they d- do d- differ. Obviously, it's very racialised. Yeah. Uh, but also, the police force is very racialised. It's so weird. It's obviously it's about power and and control. I guess it always has been, yeah. Mm. And what, what is it, it that that great mm. song? It ta- it took it takes a, a country of thirty million people to keep us down, or whatever it is. It takes 50 a nation of millions to hold, hold us, hold us back. back. That's is that the, the public word. enemy tune. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is exactly the truth. Yeah, you're right. So, so I mean, everything's politics. So when they say Australia uh, politicising Australia Day, you sort of almost just have to fall over and laugh, really, don't you? Yeah. Well, and there was a nice <laughs> demonstration. It wasn't, you know, on the political sphere, but just for a straight trade union. Like the fact that the Australian cricketers, you know, you know, they had the Austra- entire Australian cricket board, all of these ex-directors of Rio Tinto and all these union busters saying, ho, 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 you know, we're going to smash the union, basically. And the players just stood their ground, um, actually, you know, drove it to a point where, you know, the production of the commodity was being affected. They, you know, were starting to cancel tours and so on, and the company folded. So it's not a bad example of... Um, no, that's you know, exactly even, right. Well, you talk about bread and circuses. Well, you know, bakeries and cir- bakeries and circus workers can also be organised. Well, they? yeah, yeah, it's work. And the interesting thing about that particular thing was that uh, the, uh, one of the interesting things was that all those people who were on the board, there was no reason for them to do that. They just are in love with themselves and want to crush the workers. Sounds like a familiar theme. Boardrooms <laughs> all over Australia. <laughs> Um, Thanks yeah. for coming in and talking to us. Okay, thank you. Hopefully see you on the Saturday the 14th. Thanks. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. 
a weak solidarity bricky team listener when that one day in September has come round again and for once it's in September what's happening at the AFL and once again we're fortunate to have our regular caller Kevin at the ground alongside our much loved special commentator Michelle let's get to the ground what's happening Kevin a sensation over here. The, the game may not go on. It seems there's an energy crisis affecting the ground and the players. There's no power and there's some conjecture they couldn't pay the bill. This is a sensation, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. It, it seems there's an energy crisis affecting the ground and the players. There's no power and there's some conjecture they couldn't pay the bill. Great comment, Michelle. What insight. And even if they can raise the money for the bill and get the power back on, the game still may not go on. Another sensation. A group of caring business class players have trapped their captain, Tunnel Bull, in a big net and are holding him back, saying he should not cross the boundary onto the right wing because that is too far to the left. The, the team can't get on the ground. What's going on, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. A group of caring business class players have trapped their captain ton of bull in a big net and are holding him back, saying he should not cross the boundary onto the right wing because that is too far to the left. Brilliant analysis, Michelle. Brilliant. Notice the caring business class ex-captain a bit more for the bosses has declared they should not cross the boundary line because there would be men together and women together. And this would be bringing politics into sport and attack on our Judeo-Christian ethic. What's he up to, Michelle? Very interesting, Kevin. The caring business class ex-captain a bit more for the bosses has declared they should not cross the boundary line because that would be men together and women together. And this would be bringing politics into sport, an attack on our Judeo-Christian ethic. What would we do without you, Michelle? What would we do? Now, now I'm looking for the opposition and its captain short and ambition. There's no sign of them not to be seen. Where are they, Michelle? What's going on? Very interesting, Kevin. The opposition and its captain short and ambition are not to be seen. Well spotted, Michelle, well spotted. Well, not spotted, I suppose. <laughs> and more delays, this time from the corporate boxes. Following the US of the UN of the US of the world decision to slash the cost for the corporates at US of football games, our corporates say they'll be forced to evacuate the corporate boxes if Tunnel Bull doesn't give them the same concessions. Analysis, Michelle. Very interesting, Kevin. Following the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world decision to slash the cost for the corporates at U.S. of football games, our corporates say they'll be forced to evacuate the corporate boxes if Ton of Bull doesn't give them the same concessions. Another stunning analysis, Michelle. Look, until something happens by way of an, an actual game, we'll take it back to the studio. <clears throat> well, we'll keep our ear to the ground, so to speak, and head back if anything actually happens, but what insight from the riveting Michelle? We're lucky to have her. While on sport, in the week that was sport, golfer Tiger Woods and Irons says he may not play competitive golf again because of a back injury. Understandable, because I've heard Shaggers back can be a real problem. 
Speaking of two sides and the same side, sad week for all of us who appreciate law and order in the workplace, the never-ending battle to contain the evil of evil unions, although battle is an unfortunate term because it implies there might be two sides, caring employers on one side, lazy avaricious workers on the other, struggle, indeed class struggle, when we know that is a distant legacy, fading memory long morphed into caring employers and government and the opposition knowing there is no such thing. And if only the evil unions would realise that reality, there would be no need for the building and construction jackboots inquisition commission. Sad week for all of us as the much lamented Nigel Hedge kissed the bosses ended his term as chief inquisitor, forced out when all he was trying to do was prosecute the evil through laws he knew should be the laws even if they were not the laws. But Nigel made a beautiful farewell speech. He did not regret one second of his 48 years in law enforcement, many of them as a federal... uh, Sorry, copper. We have to admire someone who has such respect for the law, don't we? I have thoroughly enjoyed the challenges that the last decade or so have brought. Who wouldn't thoroughly enjoy smashing evil unions and evil workers? And Nigel told the Inquisition jackboot staff he couldn't stress enough the importance of their work. I can't stress enough how much we must all hate workers. Hate, hate, hate. How much we must all hate unions who have no respect for Nigel's laws. And he, and this is heartwarming, he had received dozens of goodwill and thank you messages from contractors, industry associations and politicians. And, no, 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 oh no, no unions or workers, and and after all he's done for them. Oh, won't we miss him, and won't we miss Nigel's law? To balance that, we reported last week how the shop the workers' union had negotiated workers' wages and conditions at salt, sugar and fat provider McDonald's in a downward direction, with the caring employer and the good, good, good union agreeing all workers must be in the union, which ensures they enjoy below award wages and conditions, proving the difference between good and evil. If the evil construction union goes to a job site and says all workers must be in the union, it gets fined millions. So it's encouraging and proper that the law sensibly supports good, good, good unions and good, good, good caring employers who work with the good, good, good union to ensure all the workers are in the union. It makes sense, McDonald's manager Rick Bloated explained. Otherwise, we'd have to meet award rates and conditions. And how altruistic, the which bank, which used to be our bank, dropped its fee for turning up out the front and taking some of our money out. And then to show the social value of competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, the other three giant competitors were also struck with the spirit of altruism. We can but wonder how they could afford it. Perhaps the fee for avoiding a fee fee will help a bit along with the walking past the door fee. Back to that energy crisis at the footy, fighting not to lose, fighting to win-win for all of us, big supremo Malcolm Tunner, born his stunning mind deputy Barnacle, continue to work their guts out to reduce our utility bills. 
through which we receive the almost utopian promised benefits of handing our utilities to the lean, mean hand of the super-efficient private sector. Imagine what we'd be paying if the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector still ran the system. Uh, So what's planned? We're calling a meeting with the utility bosses. Uh, And if that fails, we'll call a meeting with the utility bosses. And we'll go on trying to meet our bills. Meanwhile, Energy Behemoth AG Hell for You rejected Malcolm's generous offer that it keep its clunky Liddell coal polluter open, announcing it could replace the fossil with renewable wind and solar, prompting an angry Malcolm to spit that he would only support a fossil and would reject the renewable alternative. Barnacle and the team of fossils patted him on the back. Well said, Malcolm. We need renewable coal. What happens if the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow? And certainly the sun not shining, or at least the shining not making it through the fossil pollution, is a real possibility. So Barnacle and co are on the ball. Look, I don't want people to get the wrong impression, Malcolm clarified. It's not that we don't support renewable energy. It's just that we don't support renewable energy. No, no, let me further clarify that. It's not that I don't support renewable energy. It's just that they don't support renewable energy. In the latest meeting with utility bosses, the utility bosses said they would provide enough of our gas to keep things running as long as we were prepared to pay the excessive rip-off price they demand. This, Malcolm boasted, would lower energy prices. Uh, uh, Malcolm, Malcolm, uh, how can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can demand lower the price? Good question. How can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can... Yes, well, uh, Scott, Scott, how can the utility bosses demanding the highest possible rip-off price they can demand lower the price? Scott, Scott time for us to clarify. Malcolm calls Scuttlebeam Morlesh son Scott for some reason. Well, not the for some reason bit, but Scott. Finally, can't complain about their energy policy though. It's working well, but we have a little further to go. Right now, we're up there with Turkey sharing the lead with Turkey in the world energy combustion stakes. Come on, Turkey. Surely we can beat Turkey. Let's make a promise. For the next 12 months, we'll throw ourselves selflessly into the combustion emission business and do True Blue Aussie proud. Elevate us to outright top of the world on the combustion pile by this time next year. Give Turkey the bird. Uh, Presuming the world survives our selfless efforts, of course. Good morning. Hi, I'm Hannah Smiley from WA. When I'm in Melbourne, I listen to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. You can listen on your digital radio or stream it live and subscribe at 3cr.org.au. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. G'day, Humphrey, how are you? I'm very well, Annie, and how's your good self? I'm okay. I'm really quite keen to talk about oily Sam Griffith. (laughs) Well, he's an intriguing character, isn't he? It reveals quite a lot about a long period of Australian history, from the 1880s up to the present, in fact. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He gets the name of oily Sam when he's a schoolboy, because they said... (laughs) 
I'd hope they, well, so they say about him, it may all be one of those sort of political lies they spread about people, but they said that even at school, he was prepared to argue any side of any question. Um, and we'll see how he certainly slips from one position to another during the course of this. Because wasn't, wasn't he part of that sort of Red Ned, was it Red Ned or whatever Queensland was considered oh, no, to be? no, he's much earlier than then. Oh, OK. He's about, I mean, they come, I mean, that really is, I, mean, I have to say, I mean, is it old Queensland or I have to stick up my hands for this? That period from 1915 to about 1921 was the most radical government in Australian history. And the reason they got cut off was that the London bond market said to them, if you don't stop this, we will not let you have any more money. That's right. Mm. And they put an end to that. Okay, but so this years, but that, was, that, was about, that was about 30 years. By then, Sam was firmly on the other side of the barricade. Okay, you tell us what he, how he started, where he started and where he went to. Well, he was a Welshman. Yeah. Taffy was a Welshman. He came out to Queensland. He's a lawyer. He goes into politics. He becomes Premier. Eventually, he becomes Chief Justice and he rewrites the criminal code in a very progressive way. So he's part of that small L liberal tradition. And it's a bit hard now, after all the, you know, the decades of so-called neoliberalism, um, to remember that people like John Stuart Mill by the end of his life, was calling himself a socialist and calling for the nationalisation of land. Yeah. So it's a different world. I mean, it's, it's like Hitler be- and the Nas- what is it, the Democratic Socialist Workers' Party. So the <laughs> what is it, Democrat? What wasn't Hitler Democratic Socialist Workers' oh, Party? Oh well, no, with the nationalisation of land, of course, is the major campaign program of the working class in the 19th century mm. because they thought that if they could get a bit of land back, they could escape from the power of the capitalists without having to overthrow the system. Hmm. So it's a big issue. And indeed, I mean, all of this grows out of you know, our discussion of the centenary of Marx's capital, which we're about to get around to because Sam reads it too. Um, but at the time, Henry George and the, the Single Tax League was really a way of trying to get control of the natural resources back in, in, into the hands of the majority of the population. So that for the nationalisation um, of, of the basic natural resource, which is the soil, um, this was a very radical position. And indeed, it's amusing to think that uh, when the resources rent tax was on, uh, poor old Julie Bishop was going around saying it's Marxist. Well, somebody might have reminded her that the founder of bourgeois liberalism, John Stuart Mill, was in favour of a much, much more radical uh, solution to the problem, i.e. the entire nationalisation of land, not just the taking of a tiny, larger fraction of the of the money that the um, that the big corporates were taking out of it. Because this was at back the beginning of them really, dis- yeah. anyway, discussing he's, he's the issue office, of... Which may explain why he moves far to the left. Right. He writes for William Lane's publication. He puts a pin in there about the distribution of wealth. He develops this one pager into a, a long article for a big journal, a big monthly magazine published in Australia, um, the Centennial Magazine in 1889. And in that, he comes up with some of the most radical political positions that have ever been put by a mainstream politician in Australia. 
Now, he's out of office at the time, uh, but he is in Parliament and he's introducing bills into the Parliament for the redistribution of wealth. Uh, now, that, under any circumstances, particularly um, uh, in those days, was a pretty radical thing for anyone even to be suggesting. And he does this partly because he's read the English translation of Marx's Volume 1 of Das Kapital. And he, he pretty much takes on the basics of what Marx says about that, as, as, as we will get to see. Um, he doesn't quote Marx, but if you know your Marx, you'll see where all the ideas have come from. And we do know that, that he has... You know, there are other evidences to show that, yes, he... He had just read Volume 1, um, which he wasn't the only one. Quite a number of people, a number well, of... Well, it was a very important document. And well, as, you, as you say, uh, he suspected that uh, those want to accuse reformers like himself of fostering revolution... Uh, it, it was a disguise harboured a guilt conscience, guilty conscience. <laughs> he did, yes, yeah. He turned that against them there for sure. Um, I mean, Sam ends up, um, you know, in a, in a different side. But in the article that he writes, he, he, he divides it into three. He says the first part upholds that radical view in Das Kapital that all the new wealth comes from human labour. That's, you know, I mean, you don't get many people saying that these days. The second is he tries to explain why capital and not the workers get all that extra. And the third part, he makes some suggestions, is for how to redistribute all the new wealth to the working class. Now, you know, it'd be pretty interesting to see a politician advance that in 2017 today. Um, now... As you say, um, he, he, he accuses these people who oppose him of having a guilty conscience about how they acquired their present possessions. But he's astute enough to know that if you try and take it away from them, they will resort to physical violence and to arms, and there'll be an armed struggle from the from the capitalist class, not from the workers, but if you try and take it, what they've got away from them. Yeah, so, so the, the fat baby will will fight. Now, oh, yeah. The, yeah. it's interesting too, because it, because this is an early part of the discussion about this sort of stuff, uh, he, uh, they say their class, the fat baby class, says that they get the profit because they're rewarded for abstinence. It's a wonderful argument. Yeah, isn't it? They get, an argue, they get all this money for doing nothing. Yeah. In a sense. Now, one of the, one of the other people at the time, in, in English economists, said, well, yes, I accept that bit of the argument, but the children of these people didn't abstain, therefore they're not entitled to inherit. <laughs> That's a nicely a twist to the argument. But what Sam's going on to say is that um, what we've got to see is that all of this, he asked that very hard question. How is it that if the workers add all the new wealth, that they don't get it? Yes. Um, and, of course, that is because, as we'll see, uh, he sees that there is a relatively... Im you know, there's great imbalance in the social power with, within the course of the society. He makes it very clear that, that, um, that, that for any capitalist who gets down and dirty... And, and does some actual work, then they're entitled to get paid a wage like any of their workers. 
but they're not entitled to just take all of the new wealth because they happen now to own the means of production. So what Sam's saying is that the proposal he's prepared to put forward is that we won't take what they've got away from them, but we won't let them get any more. Now, in practical terms, we've seen over the last 100 years of social reform that unless you take the capital away, the redistribution keeps going upwards. So unless there's an attack on the control of capital. But, you know, he didn't see this and there was no evidence to show it. But, it's a, you know, his proposal to stop them getting any more is really a major attack on the capitalist system because the system depends upon the accumulation. And he was trying to, and he was trying to sort of cut that off at the pass. Now, he keeps putting the hard question, why should the workers not get all the profits, he keeps saying. Um, and he asks, how is it that the possession of property enables a man to live without working himself by means of the work of other people? Um, and on he goes in And that's interesting because they see that as a natural order. Oh, yes, indeed. The natural I mean, order. A, yeah, and I mean, and Marx over and over again says nothing is it in, in there is nothing in social life that is eternal, natural, or universal. Everything is the result of human activities, and those activities keep changing things. They keep changing the environment around us, and nothing, therefore, can be considered to be eternal, natural, or universal. But that's the kind of arguments they put up, that war is in our, in our genes, Genting. capitalism's in our genes, all of this. And but they now, use religion as a propaganda arm. Well, they did, but of course that falls to the side. They then resort to their distortions of the scientific analysis. Ah, yes. So, you know, so they will, in order to stay in control, they have to resort to anything, whether it's religion (laughs) or, you know. They don't care. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they care in the sense that they need to target whatever propaganda they're putting out. So some things will appeal to some people and some things won't appeal to some others. So Sam moves on to the question is, how is it that the workers don't get all that we produce? Um, How is it that that, um, what he calls a a state of real, um, an attack on the basic justice of, of society, and he's a lawyer, so he's thinking in those terms, how is it that's possible? Now, What he points out, of course, is that it's only possible that this is fair if the bargain between the employer and the employee is worked out on equally free and equal terms. But he says, and I quote, it's notorious that there is not ordinarily any such equal freedom of contract between the employer and the employed. And he goes on to say, a measure of freedom of contract has been obtained by combination on the part of the workers, i.e. forming trade unions. That's right. This very combination, he says, is the effort of strength put forward against the other part to the bargain, who, but for the combination, and he says sometimes in spite of it, would be the stronger. So... I was using this, you know, this argument from, you know, because Sam goes on to become, well, I mean, Sam drafts the first uh, version of the Australian Constitution in 1891. He goes on to become the attorney, uh, 
um, Chief Justice in 1903, and today, since the last 25 years, he's been the patron saint of the constitutional monarchists. They call their society after him. So during the Work Choices campaign, Mm. I kept quoting this bit out of... uh, um, out of what of, uh, out of what Sam Griffith, the patron of this right wing organisation, and their friends in the H.R. Nichols Society, because they're pretty much the same, they overlap that anti union body. Um, it was wonderful to be able to quote Sam Griffith saying that the only way you get freedom in a capitalist society and equality is if there are strong trade unions, um, and that point. Uh, and indeed, it's a nice propaganda point to be able to quote him and to use that evidence against him, uh, or, or, or to turn it against them as well. Um, and he goes on, you know, he says that the possession of, this is a pretty long quote, but I'll say, in short, the rule of the strong, which in one form is slavery, or the practical ownership of men by men, has by no means disappeared from our social system. We've abolished its most objectionable outward and apparent manifestation, but it still exists as part of the practical rule of life. Now, what he's getting at there, of course, is what Marx calls wage slavery. He doesn't use, Sam doesn't use that phrase, of course, but that's really what he's talking about, that in a capitalist society, the freedom of labour turns you into a wage slave. And it's, it's, it's that situation that offends his notion that there is some eternal, inalienable human right to be equal. And he takes that mainly from the American Constitution. And quite a lot of what he writes into the Australian Constitution bears some of those ideas that were around 100 years earlier. Um, and indeed, the very name of calling it the Commonwealth of Australia has some of that argument as well. Um, of course, it doesn't get fulfilled in that kind of way. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's important, I think, when we're looking back to see that people thought differently in the days before there was a big organised working class. They were still thinking in terms of our duty as the bourgeois liberal, is to reform society on their behalf. Mm. It's only when the workers really get organised, and this is 1889, of course, he's talking about, there's no big union movement, there's no, there's no parliamentary Labour Party, the big strikes haven't happened. So they still think, you know, we're really in charge of this. We can do, the th- you know, we can go around doing good things for other people. It's when they're challenged, as we'll see, before we end, uh, the big challenge comes in how Sam responds to that, um, that this big change in the class attitudes truly comes about. And you move to the situation, as Mark said, that the worker has to free himself. He can't be done by anybody else on his, on his or her behalf. So here we have Sam in 1889 putting forward these very radical ideas, which he's... I mean, he's had some of them, as I say, from the American Constitution, but he has just read Marx's Volume 1. He's not the only one, as I said. Um, some workers are beginning to read it at this time, but you've got to remember that I mean, to, to buy a copy of it took probably the equivalent of one day's pay mm. to the average person. And there, weren't, there were copies. There was a copy in the State Library of New South Wales, 
um, from this time. And as I said last time, um, if you want to buy it, you know, it would now cost you, I think, $21,199.28 to get get a copy of the original edition in English. But... um, Isn't it amazing how artists and writers starve while their product... Which is another example of the capitalist system, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, as Mark said, you never get. I mean, if you're a scientist, you come up with a major discovery, you know, in the in the old days, or you know, produce a great work of art or something. The chances that you're going to get the full value of your labour um, are are indeed pretty slender. Um, and indeed, of course, more and more with the attacks on on the control of copyright passing over to the big corporations. Yeah, right. it, it's even getting harder and harder to do this. So there is Sam, and Sam's solution to this is that we've got to have a practical system of reform. He introduces two bills into the parliament uh, to try to redistribute the wealth. He, one of them is lays down the broad principles and the other tries to set out some of the ways in which this is going to happen. Now, what happens, of course, is that over the next 20 years or so, you do get some other sources of legal change trying to do this. One of them is the Arbitration and Conciliation Commission. And by 1907, you get Higgins bringing down what is, you know, what we now refer to as the basic wage. Uh, it wasn't enough, but it was a big increase on what many on what many people had got. And that had come out of the kind of demand for redistribution of the wealth, not anything like what Sam was saying, which was that all of the new wealth should uh, should be handed over to the workers. Well, um, you know, because... We're still a long way from that. Well, you know, as you've already said, you know, and wages of labour are practically fixed at the necessary cost that main t- uh, the maintenance of the labour labourer during his labour. That means that they'll... They get the, Wages are set at the amount of money that a person needs to keep themselves going and then coming back to work. Yeah, and, very uh, much so. I and mean, this, this is this where is, we are at the moment. Yeah, and it certainly is, and it's where we always are in a capitalist system. There's no, I mean, there's no, as we've said over and over again, there's no such thing as a fair day's pay under capitalism because what you get, as you've just said, is the best you can hope for is you will get enough to cover the costs of reproducing your labour power, not just for the next 24 hours, but across your entire life and across the, you know, so you can educate your kids and bring them up and all that thing. So it's a cross-generational thing. So that, you know, I mean, that's the most you can hope for. And now Sam uses the word, it is practically. And this is, I mean, it's worth pondering that because Marx says there is no iron law of wages. I mean, other socialists were saying the workers can only get this amount. Sam, um, Marx saying no, workers can struggle. Yeah. They can organise. They can get a larger share. Which and is what Sally come... McManus is saying right at the moment. <laughs> moment yeah. yeah. And, of course, at the other side, when the bosses get better organised, as they have been for the last 30 years, um, then they can take a larger share. So there is no fixed law. There's no iron law as to how much you're going to get. Um, but, of course, it is a capitalist system, and the vast majority of it's always going to end up in the hands of the capitalists. Otherwise, you don't have a capitalist system anymore. <laughs> so, you know, but the important point is to remember that exploitation is 
what every worker undergoes in a capitalist system. It's not just the 7-Eleven workers. It's not just the people who aren't going to get all, all of the penalty rates they used to get. And the ACTU, I have to say, and Sally's falling into this again, and the other left-wing trade union leaders, they use exploitation for that special category. Whereas the truth of the matter is every worker is exploited. Otherwise, there would, be, there would be no capitalist system. What happened to uh, Oily Sam? Well, Oily Sam uh, goes back into... I mean, he's in Parliament, and, of course, he does a deal with his political enemy on the far right, who's a complete crook. Um, Sir Thomas McElwraith is one of the great... I mean, I mean Joe Bajelke-Peterson has nothing <laughs> on Tom McElwraith, mm. you have to say. But they do a deal, they form a coalition, and... Then the great shearing strikes break out. Right. And And what does he do? What does Sam do? He remembers whose side of the class barricade he's on. And as Premier, he sends the troops out to Claremont and to Barcaldine to suppress the shearer's strike. And they murder a worker. Well, well, I mean, they, they do quite a lot of that. And they arrest the union leaders, take them to trial. You know, we know we know the words of the great song. Um, you know, to trial at Bar- you know, the, you know, to trial at Rockhampton, the sixteen men were brought. Um, the the judge had got his orders, and the bosses owned the court. Hmm. And Sam is presiding over all of that. So <clears throat> what we see is that while the bourgeois liberals are prepared to have quite progressive ideas, when push comes to shove, when it looks as if the workers might actually get a larger share of all that we produce, of all of the new wealth that he was talking about, then they resort to physical force. The arguments are all very well. They'll have them in Parliament, but the ultimate power is their control over a monopoly of violence, uh, and that's what they had. And what they objected to, of course, is that there was an arm camp, that those shearers out there had guns as well, and they weren't going to allow that alternative power. And of that, of course, to leap ahead a bit, <coughs> is the difference in, 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 the, in what becomes the Soviet Union in 1917, because the workers have been armed to go and fight for the Tsar. And they come back, um, and they <laughs> and still turn got their the, arms, and the got their rifles training. around, around. And it's a very mm. different world. And that, of course, is you know, is is you know, the hundredth anniversary of the stormy of the Winter Palace is yeah. very close, very close at hand. We so have to finish there. We have to finish there. Um, but we'll be back in four weeks' time. Thanks, mate. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. And that was Humphrey McQueen. You're on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're coming to the end of the program. We started off listening to Amanda Stone, the uh, mayor of Yarra, about uh, why the 26th of January isn't a celebratory day and why their council changed their approach to Australia Day. We went on to talk to uh, Debbie Brennan, who was there at uh, the Moreland Council uh uh, meeting last Wednesday when uh, fascists came in and uh, did a stunt a demonstration. We uh, talked to Jerem Small about the upcoming Union Activist and History Conference. And, uh, of course, Kevin was here to tell us all about This Is The Week That Was. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We're going to go out with uh, Stomping Ground. 
but I wouldn't be banned. I was going to do River of Tears, but I decided I'd be a bit upbeat. 